Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. Fear is most commonly defined as an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. However, it can also mean to have a profound reverence or awe. This is the definition we will use on today's program as John continues his series on the book of Revelation with his message, The Fear of the Lord. Well, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter number 14, I want to show you a passage of Scripture that I have never preached from, and the odds are you've never heard a sermon on this passage of Scripture. Now, some of you may have, but I would say most people have never heard a sermon preached on the passage that I'm going to be dealing with. And so what I want us to think about today is the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, It's interesting. Let me give you some scripture verses to write down. In Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So whatever the fear of the Lord is, it's the beginning place of making good decisions and having wisdom in life. In Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 5, it says that if we will seek wisdom, then we will understand the fear of of the Lord. And that's what we want to do today to try to understand what is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5, 6 and 7, a familiar passage to many of us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Then verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes and then notice the next phrase, fear the Lord and depart from evil. Verse 8 says it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. And so fearing the Lord is a good thing. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Now, remember, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, other than Jesus himself. And Solomon is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of his 12-chapter book, he says this. Now let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So he's saying, here's my book in a nutshell. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is man's all. And so Solomon says, if you forget everything else I wrote, remember this. Fear God and do what he says. That's all that God expects of you and requires of you. And so we're thinking about the fear of the Lord. Now in Revelation chapter 14, we're working our way slowly but surely through this book. And as you know, we have been for the last several weeks in the middle of the great tribulation period that will one day come upon the earth after the church is raptured and we're all taken to heaven to be with God, we know that the Antichrist will emerge on the, on the stage of human history and he will gather a following after him. While that's happening, the judgment and wrath of God will be poured down from heaven. Many people will get saved. Many others will not be saved. But as we're coming now and getting ready to move towards the second half of that seven-year tribulation, God does something that he's never done before and that he'll never do again. God sent angels to preach the gospel message. Now, we believe in angels. I thank God for angels. We know that angels protect us and watch over us and keep us safe. We read in the Bible that there were even times when God would send angels like Gabriel to make an announcement. But there has never been an angel to preach a sermon 
that we would a sermon, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there never will be again other than the three angels that we read about in Revelation chapter 14. So what I want you to see is that during this tribulation period, God so badly wants to see people get saved, that he's going to send three angels from heaven to preach. Now think about it. At this time on the earth, there will be three categories of people. Category one, those who have been saved during the tribulation. Category of two, those who are unsaved and who have no hope of being saved because they have taken the mark of the beast, either on their forehead or on their hand. They've taken that number, 666. They have forever identified themselves with the Antichrist and with Satan himself, and that mark cannot be removed. It's not like a tattoo that you get today that you might go have it removed. The mark of the beast can never be removed, and so these people have no hope of being saved. But on the earth, there's also a third category of people, and that is those who are unsaved, but they have not taken the mark, and so they've not made their decision yet. And it is to this group of people that God sends these three angels to preach the gospel. But it's interesting, while the angels are preaching the gospel to group number three, group number one and group number two can hear what they're saying. And so that says to me today that whether you're saved or unsaved, what we're going to be studying today has application and it has relevance for your life. And God put it in the Bible because God wants us to hear it. So beginning in verse 6, we'll read through verse 13. John has the vision now, and here's what he said. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. So this angel is preaching the same gospel that we preach today. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. And he's preaching that to those who dwell on the earth. Now watch this. To every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. And so everybody hears this message. It's interesting. When this first angel preaches... One of the things he is doing, he is fulfilling a prophecy that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 when he said, the gospel must be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. We sometimes have the idea that preaching on the radio or preaching on the television, that's the way the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world and it is part of it, but it will not be until these angels preach the gospel that actually everybody will hear it. Look in verse 7 and here's what this first angel said, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And so this first angel is saying to the people who've not who are not saved but who could still get saved, fear God, take God seriously, reverence God, give your life to God. And yet we learn beginning in verse 8 that not everybody listened to that message because God had to send a second angel. And here's what the second angel said, verse 8. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she had made, has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So Babylon here is a reference to the empire, to the kingdom that Antichrist will establish during the tribulation. We know that in Bible times, Babylon, which is modern day Iraq, 
uh, that's the place where idolatry began. You remember in Genesis chapter 11, the people living in this area said, let's build a tower up that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. They were building a monument to themselves. And God looked down and God hates pride and God destroyed that tower and God confused everybody's languages and so that people living in different places couldn't understand what others were saying. And so when it, so in the tribulation period, Babylon is used to describe the Antichrist, his empire, his religious empire, his political empire, and his economic empire. It's all referred to as Babylon. And eventually, when we get to chapters 17 and 18, we'll learn more about the fall of Babylon. But nonetheless, here, this second angel is saying, for those of you who are considering following the Antichrist, you need to understand that his kingdom has already fallen. It is doomed, it is done, and you will be following a loser if you follow the Antichrist. But evidently not everybody listened to the second angel because God sent a third angel. And in verse 9, listen to what it says. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand... He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. And so that's why I said earlier, once a person takes the mark of the beast, they can never be saved. Because it says here, everybody who receives the mark will end up in hell with the Antichrist, with the false prophet, and with Satan himself. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And so there we have the recording of these three angels and the message that they will preach during the tribulation. And what I had originally done in my original sermon, I was pulling out lessons from the sermon that each angel preached. But again, late last night, as I was thinking about this, and I got thinking about this thing about fearing God, and I, this is one of those sermons that's more in my heart than it is in my head. I don't have it, as thought, I don't have it thought through as clearly as I normally would. But as I thought about what these angels were saying, you could take the message of all three angels and you could condense it down. And what each of those angels was saying is, fear God. That is the message. And that is the message it will be for those living during the tribulation. But it is also the message for those of us living today that we should fear the Lord. And so what does it mean to fear the Lord, to walk in the fear of the Lord? What does it mean? Let me give you some things. You might want to just jot this down as best you can. First of all, to fear the Lord is to fear the judgment of God, to fear the judgment of God. I'll say this, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons I got saved is because I was afraid of the judgment of God. I was afraid of the wrath of God. Said another way, I got saved in part because I didn't want to go to hell. I don't think, does anybody here want to go to hell? No. The fear of hell is a tremendous motivation for getting saved. If a person rejects Jesus 
then that person has their sins that are on them still. That person is responsible for their sins. They haven't dealt with their sins by trusting Christ. And so for the people whose sins are still on them, what will they have to do? They will have to go to hell and eternally they will be punished for their sins. A healthy fear of the Lord. The word literally means an, a holy awe of God. A seriousness about God. A respect for God. It's that we don't refer to God as the man upstairs. God is not the man upstairs. God is our holy, sinless, perfect, heavenly Father. Creator of heaven and earth. We don't refer to God as our buddy or our sidekick. God is our friend, but he's not our buddy. If you refer to God as your buddy, you're reducing God down to your side. Yes, he is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. But God is not just like you. You say, well, he came to earth in the form of Jesus to be like me. But Jesus never sinned, and we have. But what we want to do in these little things we say about God, we're just trying to reduce God down to a better version of us. God is not a better version of us. God is a perfect representation of holiness and righteousness in himself. And so the idea of fearing the Lord, it is a holy, reverent all in the presence of God. That's why it says in the Old Testament, one of the books of the prophets, I believe it's in Habakkuk, it says the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. Some people say, well, when I get to heaven after all the things I've been through, I'm going to ask God and I'm going to te- tell God a thing or two. Listen to me, friend. When we get to heaven, we're not going to tell God anything. We're going to bow before his feet and thank him for saving us and making it possible for us to be in heaven with him forever. When I see God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two. No, you're not. He's not going to listen to it. He's God. He doesn't have to listen to it. And so even after we get saved, I just said to you, I have no fear of going to hell because I'm not going to hell because I'm saved and I'm trusting Christ. And yet I have in my heart a fear of God that in many ways drives and dominates my life. You say, well, in what sense do you have a fear of God? I'll tell you the first sense. I have a fear of doing anything that would displease God. Anything that would dishonor God, anything that even might disappoint God. There's some things in my life that I probably could do. I really probably could, but I don't do them because in my heart, I think I might be displeasing God if I did them. And if God ever spoke to me and said, you would not be displeasing me if you did that, then I would do it. But as long as I think I even might be displeasing him, I can't bring myself to do it because I, I, it, would, it would just destroy my life and it would ruin me. So there's a fear of, of, of disappointing God, a fear of displeasing God. Do you remember in the Gospels we read about on the night or leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus said to his disciples, that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be betrayed and be killed and all these horrible things were going to happen. Three days he would rise again and everybody was going to turn against him. And Simon Peter said, Lord, if everybody turns away from you, if everybody denies you, I'll not deny you. Even if I have to die, I'll not deny you. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, no, Lord, I would never do that. You know the story. There he was in the courtyard of the high priest, and people began talking. And one little girl, one young girl said, aren't you one of his followers? He said, I don't know who you're talking about. And three times Peter denied Jesus. And we read in Luke's gospel. I think Luke gives us the clearest account of the denials. After that third denial, the rooster crowed. And when that rooster crowed, all that ran through Peter's mind, what Jesus had said. He had predicted it. I said I would never do it, and now I've done it. I've done the thing I said I would never do. And in Luke's gospel, it says that when that rooster crowed, Jesus looked at Peter. 
And every time I read that passage, I try to imagine, I put myself in Peter's shoes, and I, I think, what must that look have looked like? And I don't think it was a look of anger. I don't think it was a look of, I told you so. I don't think Jesus was standing there shaking his head with his arms frowned and his brow down. I don't think so at all. I think when Jesus looked at Peter, it was a look of disappointment. Like, how could you have done that? I know you love me. You know you love me. But in the heat of the battle, you denied that you knew me. And even though I knew you were going to do it, I told you you were going to do it. Now that it's done, now that the rooster has crowed, the deed has been done. How could you have done that, Peter? How could you have displeased me like that? And so when I think of what does it mean to have the fear of the Lord, for me anyway, it is a fear of doing, and I do, hey, I sin way more than I wish I did, but the thought of willfully, knowingly, habitually involving myself in something that could displease the Lord and causing him to look at me one day and say, John, how could you? What were you thinking? Why did you do that? It's just more than I can take. It's more than I can bear. You know, when we have somebody in our lives that we love and we look up to, we don't want to do anything to disappoint them, to displease them. When we're young, we don't want to disappoint our teachers and our coaches. We don't want to disappoint our Sunday school teachers when we're kids or our youth ministers. When we're growing up, we don't want to disappoint our parents and do something that that we know would, would, would be something they wouldn't want us to do. I can remember when I was 16 years old, I, of course, got my driver's license, and I got me a 1979 Chevrolet pickup truck, single cab, short bed. I would pay good money if I could ever find that same truck again today. My license plate was PU8411, and I wish I still had that truck. And when I was first starting to drive, my dad would get in the car with me and we'd, in the truck, and we'd drive around Hopkins County, drive around Sulphur Springs. And there was this one little neighborhood that... We would come to, and it was just a, a sleepy, slow neighborhood. And on the back end of that neighborhood, there was a stop sign. I never even understood why the stop sign was there. I never understood who we were stopping for because there was nobody coming through. And so I, that was my logic. And I remember going through there with my dad one day, and, and uh, I, I got to that stop sign, and I just thought, well, you don't have to. This is, shouldn't even be. I just slowed down to about five miles per hour, and I, I turned to the right. And my dad said to me, he said, John, what did that sign say back there that you just went through? He said, in fact, what I want you to do, tell me how the word on that sign was spelled. I said, well, it said S-T-O-P. He said, so I'm just making sure. It did, I want to make sure I didn't misread it. It didn't say S-L-O-W. I said, no, sir, it didn't say S-L-O-W. It said S-T-O-P. He said, John... Every time you come to this stop sign or any other stop sign, I don't care if you see people within a mile and a half, if the sign says stop, you stop. And he gave me a good talk about it. Me and Joel both coming up. He said, boys, I want you to know a car is like a gun. It's safe if you know how to use it. But if you don't know how to use a gun, you could kill yourself. If you don't know how to drive a car, you kill yourself and somebody else too. He said, when you see a stop sign, you stop. Well, he made his point, and I remember a few weeks later, I was going to football practice one night. Back then, you had two-a-day football practice, morning and afternoon. And I'd gone to morning practice, mowed yards all afternoon. I was driving back for the evening practice, and I was driving through this little sleepy neighborhood that there was never any traffic through there, and I was tired, and I was cutting it close to be at football practice on time, and, and I got to where that stop sign was, and it ran through my mind. Your dad said, stop, don't slow. I said, I know he did, but he's not here. He doesn't. Nobody, he's not here. Nobody else is here. I got to get to football practice. So I slowed down to about five or six miles per hour and I turned right. And when I did, I saw parked under a big oak tree, his car. 
He had probably been sitting there for about a half hour. And when I turned, here's what he did. He just smiled and waved at me just like that. And he went home. And when I got home from football practice that night, he never said anything about it. I mean, by then we were too old for whippings, but I wish I'd have got a whipping because I knew I had disappointed my dad. He had begged me. He had pleaded me, John, when a sign says stop, you got to stop, man. That's the law. But not only is it the law, it's for your safety. It's for everybody else's safety. And that night when I turned to the right and I saw him sitting in that car just like that, before he waved, he just kind of gave me that look like Jesus gave Peter. Like, why did you do that? I told you to stop. And so what I'm saying is we don't want to cause our parents disappointment, but we sure don't want to cause God any disappointment. And so what should we have? We should have, you should have, I should have a fear of disappointing and displeasing God. And I'll tell you something else we should have, and I have it. Talking about the fear of the Lord. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, I, I'm, I'm, you know, they talk about God like they're just almost scared that if they sin, God's going to beat them upside the head. Well, I don't have a fear of that because I don't think God beats us upside the head. And I think when we get out of line, he disciplines us, but not out of anger. I don't, I just don't, that's just not the God of the Bible. Let me tell you this. I don't have a fear of God taking his hand in anger and placing it on me in punishment. I don't have that fear. You know what I have a fear of? I have a fear of God taking his hand of anointing and blessing and favor off of me. That's my fear. And that's what I'm saying. That drives me. The fear of disappointing God, the fear of displeasing God, and the fear of losing, whether you call it the anointing, the favor, the conscious awareness of His presence, the blessing of God. I have a fear that God would ever take His hand of anointing off my life. I have a fear of that. When I woke up, just tell you how real that is. Like when I woke up this morning, I don't know how it was for you in your house and in your bed, but when I woke up, and I've told you before, it takes me a while to kind of come to. I'm not a, I have to work at, at the morning part of life, you know. And so as I was coming through this morning and just telling God I loved him and starting the day, I just kind of basically in my heart just was thinking to the Lord, Lord, this sermon I'm going to preach, I had it already. I, I knew that long thing to preach that's in the bulletin, but I just feel in my heart God, I just feel in my heart to preach about the fear of the Lord. I don't know how it's going to come out. It's in my heart more than it's in my head. I'll tell you what I had in my heart and in my head this morning. I had a peace and a conscious awareness of the presence of God. And it was as though God was saying to me, John, I have placed this thought on your heart to preach on the fear of the Lord. I know it's not put together. I know it's not thought through. I know you don't know exactly how to do it, but I just want you to know you today are preaching what I have put on your heart to preach, and you've got nothing to worry about as far as how it comes out. When you get up there in the pulpit and when you start talking today, I will meet you in the pulpit and my words will come out of your mouth. Now, that's how I started my day. And what I'm saying, the thought of waking up to come down here to preach or go anywhere to preach, and me saying to God, God, I, when I get up there to preach today, and da, 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 the thought of hearing nothing from God in return. The thought that his hand of anointing, the thought that his hand of blessing and favor, the thought that the conscious awareness of his presence could be lifted from me causes me to say, oh God, please, 
Don't let me do anything with my life that would ever disappoint you, that would ever displease you, that would ever dishonor you, and that would ever cause you to take your hand off of me. That's what it means in the Bible for the Christian when it says the fear of the Lord. Is the beginning of wisdom. That's what Solomon had in mind when he said, Now let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. We hope that today's message, The Fear of the Lord, has been a blessing to you. You can find this message and many others on our website, www.peacebybelieving.org, under the broadcast tab. If you would like to grow in your relationship with the Lord, we have some resources that we believe will help you. Simply look for the booklets tab on peacebiobelieving.org. The booklet, In the Twinkling of an Eye, is a great companion study to go along with John's current series on the book of Revelation. Thank you for being with us today, and we look forward to you joining us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.